Colossians chapter 1. We will look at verses 9 through 14 in the blue ESV Bibles. You can find that on page 983. Uh, title of our sermon this morning is Clean Hands and Pure Hearts. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are wisdom, worthy, and holiness. In Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth, one of the most ruthless characters is Lady Macbeth. And the entire play opens with her calling upon the spirits that tend on mortal thoughts. And what what she's asking for from the evil spirits is that they take away from her any of her feminine instincts to care to care about life, and to care about others. She has a burning, insatiable desire to get what she wants, and she didn't want her conscience to stand in the way. She wanted to be queen, and she was willing to do whatever it took to get there. And throughout the play, you see that in private, Lady Macbeth sort of taunts her husband, Macbeth, for lacking courage and for being a weak man. But in public, she is the most gracious. She's the most welcoming hostess. She even entices her victim, King Duncan, into her castle. And while in Macbeth's home, King Duncan is murdered, and this elaborate scheme is concocted to make it appear as though a guard was responsible, when in fact, Macbeth... And Lady Macbeth used the opportunity to remove King Duncan from standing in their way of taking the royal throne. However, nothing ever turns out the way it is expected in a Shakespeare play, just like life. And so while we might assume that they took the throne, punished some other person unjustly for the murder of the king, and they went on to hold power... There's a turn in the story at which the events that unfolded even became too much for Lady Macbeth. There's a scene where she begins to sleepwalk through the castle, and the woman who was her helper along with the doctor listen in as she she murmurs fragments of an imaginary conversation recalling that night that her and her husband conspired to murder the king. And in her rambling, she she once again accuses her husband of having a weak frame of mind, a, a conscience too sensitive, and that there will be nothing to feel or, or, or nothing to, to fear or feel bad about once the crown is theirs. And as the dialogue unravels, she not only proves herself guilty, But she also reveals the reality of her own conscience, that she cannot actually escape it as she had hoped. In one of the most famous scenes in all of Shakespeare's plays, Lady Macbeth was rubbing her hands as she walked in her sleep, seeing spots of blood that would not be removed. King Duncan's blood was on her hands. And it could not be removed. No amount of scrubbing, no amount of wishing it away would do. And Macbeth himself even said that even the ocean couldn't wash away the king's blood from his hands. And now even Lady Macbeth, who was once scorning her husband for being a man with a conscience, finds blood dyed into her very own. The once boisterous, confident woman was now a blabbering, anxious mess. Now, as we continue 
this morning thinking about the downcast soul and dealing with the very real experience of spiritual depression that many Christians walk through at some point in their lives, we would be remiss to not address the significant importance of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and what that means for us in terms of our experience of God's pleasure in our lives. Now, I'm the first to admit that I could do a sermon series a hundred weeks long on this subject matter, and for some of you, I still may never get to the exact heart of what's going on with you if you find yourself in a place of being spiritually depressed. The nature of something like this is that it's going to vary from person to person. It's the reality of the complexity of our lives in a fallen and broken world. However, what I've attempted to do is to paint some big pictures that we can think through carefully, and at the very minimum, to find some principles that we can begin to apply so that we might be able to arise from the darkness and see and begin to live in the light when we find ourselves in spiritual despair. One of the causes of the downcast soul is a pained conscience and a real knowledge within us that we are not walking in a manner pleasing to God. And sometimes it's because we have unconfessed sin. We have undealt with sin in our lives that leaves a mark of blood upon our hands that we cannot scrub out, that we cannot wish away. It's there. We see it. We just want it to go away, but it won't. And the more we try... We just hide it, we try to get rid of it on our own, and the more tormenting the whole endeavor becomes, even perhaps driving us mad. Unconfessed sin can often be the very cause of the darkest nights of our souls. Now, we have to be careful here, of course, to not be like Job's friends, automatically assuming that any kind of despair in a person's life, any kind of trial or calamity has come upon a person must be because of their sin. That's not Christianity. That's Eastern mysticism. That's something like karma. But we can also dismiss, we we can't dismiss the very true fact that God works in our hearts in such a way as to bring us to see our sin and to see His displeasure by sometimes withdrawing so as to leave us feeling deserted and desperate for Him. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at various reasons why God's people may have seasons of darkness and seasons of despair in their lives. And if that's you right now, if you're among those in the dark night of the soul right now, I don't want you to hear me saying that undoubtedly, without question, you are absolutely in some kind of unrepentant sin. However, you may be. And you must consider it. It's something we are quick to wave off and to forget about and not be willing to talk about because we're down and we we might think to do so will only bring us lower. But God's Word promises something far different for the man or the woman that freely acknowledges the realities of what's going on in their life, identifying those things that keep us from knowing Him more deeply and more intimately. We're going to think about this today as we look at a prayer from the Apostle Paul for the people of Colossae. 
The Colossians were either being overrun by or uh, Paul thought they were in danger of receiving a false teaching and he wanted to protect them. He wanted to keep them from falling into it and, and in his prayer, Paul is pleading on behalf of the people with God that their consciences are formed by the truth and that the fruit of their lives would be pleasing to God as a people who have been delivered from bondage of sin and death. So let's read together Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, one of the hallmarks of false teaching is to convince the hearers that they are okay just as they are. And in fact, if they just focus more attention on getting more and having more for themselves, they can be even better. At the heart of it all is self. False teaching, sometimes more subtle than others, really makes the case that is based entirely upon the flesh. We can, hear false, we, we, we can hear false teaching, and, and because it appeals to what I naturally want in my flesh, if I'm not rightly oriented with God, I might begin to believe it. And in our text, Paul is praying for the Colossians that they would be protected from false teaching by all of the various means that God provides to do that. And for those who are walking in spiritual depression, one of the most difficult things to overcome is this ongoing heart-level dialogue that we have. We talk to ourselves. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Spiritual depression, in time, it grows into an unruly false preacher of a false gospel. And it, and it entices you and it convinces you of a distorted view of yourself and of reality and of God. And it leaves you as a person with lingering doubts concerning the trustworthiness of God's promises. Now, whether a person is in sin or has some underlying unrepentant sin or not, this can be the case, and it leads to despair. But it's particularly prevalent in the life of the unrepentant because our inner dialogue is, is what is going on as we are constantly seeking to justify our sin that we're holding on to so tightly. For the Christian with unrepentant sin, we're fighting against the Holy Spirit himself who is informing our consciences and bringing conviction into our lives. John Calvin said our conscience is a sense of divine justice as an additional witness 
that will not allow people to conceal their sins or to elude accusation at the tribunal of the supreme judge. So if we're going to avoid the reality of what our conscience is telling us, we're going to have to find a way to convince ourselves that our sin isn't actually what it is. And so we find ourselves a false teacher that will accumulate for us a lot of inaccurate interpretations about reality. And what does the false teaching produce? A downward spiral into which we will fall further and further away from the very truth that can help us. And we've exchanged the truth for a lie. And who is the false preacher? It's ourselves. It's me. It's you. As we tell ourselves things that are not true according to God's Word. Do you feel deserted? Do you feel cut off from God? One of the most important questions that you have to ask yourself and be honest about is, do I have any unconfessed sin in my life? And if you do, what are you going to do about it? What lies are you believing? What false teaching have you ingested and told yourself in order to get through the day, in order to quiet your conscience so that you can continue trying to kick the can down the road, hoping it will all go away, trying to rub the stains from your hands, but to no avail? The Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossians is very apropos for a person with a downcast soul who is where they are because of sin. Because he gives correction to the wrong thinking that occurs in a person's life when they, when they turn in all the wrong directions to find help and to find hope. So how do we dig out? If we're willing to be honest and if we're willing to identify that we believe the false teacher within us to continue to justify and protect our favorite sins, only driving us into greater isolation from God and emptiness in our soul, where do we turn? What do we do? Well, the first thing Paul prays for the Colossians and is of vital importance for the person in the condition we've described is the need to set your mind and your heart on the truth. Look again at verse 9. Paul writes that part of his prayer is that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, the nature of spiritual depression's message is often in opposition to the gospel. And so we need to be filled with a knowledge of God's will. We need the truth. We need to know God's word. And we need to receive it all and process and apply it all with spiritual wisdom and understanding. Many of you are familiar with Paul's word in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Paul wrote that as Christians, we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does he mean? Well, he's essentially saying the same thing as we see here. We can apply that to when we have sin in our lives. It's driving us to despair because our conscience will not let us run free from the truth. We need to set our minds on the truth that we know. And that can be known in God's Word. 
So often when we have sin in our lives that we want to hold on to, that we don't want to confess, the natural response is to try to convince ourselves that the truth isn't actually true, or I'm an exception to the rule, or it doesn't mean what it actually says. But part of what drives us to despair is that we know that we are working against God who has given to us Christ that we might have abundant life. And that abundant life is being traded away each and every day for a lie. I'm measuring up my sin against God, and I'm choosing my sin over and above Him. That, brothers and sisters, will drive us to despair if we are Christians. One of the biggest battles we're forced to fight in the process of coming out of a state of spiritual depression is with ourselves, is with our unwillingness to be humbled by the Word of God. The change that we're seeking, the the growth that we desire, the felt presence of God in our lives that we so desperately want comes only through a battle. And the key to the battle is that we humble ourselves before the Lord and we believe what He says. I need my conscience formed by God's Word. I need it formed by the truth. And and when it is, I am more sensitive to my own sin and my own need for repentance, my own unwillingness to set aside the things that are interfering with my communion with God because I've favored idols over and above Christ Himself. But whenever our minds are set on the truth, when we know the truth, and yet encounter times in our lives where we are acting contrary to the truth, we we stop and we ask ourselves, are you going to believe and live according to the lie or the half-truth, or are you going to believe the promises of God? So when we're we're wringing our hands, when we're, we're trying to get the spots out that we imagine to be there, we simply need to stop and focus our minds and our hearts on the truth and preach the truth to ourselves. So perhaps, for example, the unrepentant sin in your life is jealousy. Maybe someone at your workplace gets a promotion and you don't think they should get it over you. You grow bitter toward them. You're angry at them. You're angry at your boss. In time, what's going to happen? Well, we begin to preach to ourselves a false gospel. You should be angry. You deserve this. You're really great. That should be yours. What are they thinking promoting that guy over me? What have I done? You see, my real anger isn't toward that man, and it really isn't toward that boss. Who's it towards? It's towards God. God should have given that to me. God owes that to me. And to make matters worse, what's our reasoning? Because I deserve it. And in those moments of sinful thoughts, if you're not cutting off the false preaching and reorienting our minds on the truth, the weight on our shoulders grows stronger and stronger and stronger as we're pushed down and down and down and our conscience begins to gnaw at us. The Holy Spirit, you shouldn't be angry You're in sin right now. You need to repent. But you know, I still think I deserve it. 
And what happens when we begin to believe that lie? We begin to believe other lies. All of a sudden, my jealousy has turned into a sense of self-importance, and now I'm angry at God, and and now, you know what, I'm going to show them, I'm going to put all of my effort into my job now. I'm going to prove to them how worthy I am. And so now I'm going to seek my identity and my work instead of Christ. You see this downward trajectory. It happens quickly. This, brothers and sisters, is why fixing our hearts and our minds on the things above is not just a one-time matter. It's a daily work to keep us from living upon ourselves, from living upon our own self-worth, from living upon our own distortions of the truths and the lies that we want to believe to justify the very things that are contrary to God. When we find ourselves in a state of spiritual depression, we need to ask, is there sin in my life? You may not be looking at pornography or cheating on your taxes or stealing money from the cash register at work, but have you considered whether or not you're full of self-righteousness, trying to justify it? Are you seeking to live upon the things of the world instead of living upon Christ? Are you eaten up with anger or bitterness? Until you begin to deal with those realities, you cannot expect much progress in spiritual growth and finding light in the darkness. It's interesting, and and we'll see this in our second point this morning, that Paul makes this a condition. Look again at verse 9. Be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, verse 10, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Why must our hearts and our minds be set on the truth? Paul tells us so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now many people will hear the Bible's call to obedience as something very different from the gospel. They hear the ominous tones of legalism and works and insecurity, and so they make every effort to keep the gospel call for faith and the call for obedience in radically separate categories. But Paul tells us something different than that, doesn't he? He tells us if we're going to live lives pleasing to God, our minds are going to be set on the truth. Why? Because truth in me works itself out as bearing fruit in every good work. You see that in verse 10. If the truth is in me, it has power over me. And it is taking my mind and my heart and my concerns captive. It has an intrinsic power to produce fruit. Paul says so in Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Faith works through love, and if it doesn't, it is dead, and it cannot see, and it cannot save. As James 2.17 says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. So, is obedience contrary to the gospel? No. Obedience is evidence that the gospel is having sway over my life. 
Its sway is over my thoughts. Its sway is over my actions, over the way I interact with others, over the way I go through my life day by day. The good news is not that obedience is not crucial, but that faith is the only way that we are able to obey, and this obedience of faith is the only kind that God approves of. So what's my point? Well, if you're not experiencing the pleasure of God in your life, if you don't know the nearness of God and are feeling left stranded in a dry and weary land with no water, we have to be willing to ask ourselves, am I walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Let me illustrate with my own life. When I was a teenager, I was sometimes a little bit challenging to deal with from time to time. I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live my life, and I was going to do whatever it took to get it. And if anyone stood in my way, I was going to find a way through them, over them, around them, whatever. And of course, those who stood in my way the most, in my own mind, was my parents. And generally, it came by way of me ignoring or disobeying, or fighting, because it was them that was keeping me from what I thought I deserved and should have. Now, all, all of us probably on some level have either experienced that in our lives, or with our own children, or some situation like that, and we can answer. Were my parents pleased with me? No, not all the time. They weren't pleased with me. My obedience was a determining factor in whether or not they were pleased with me. However, did they love me any less? Absolutely not. I never for one second thought that was ever the case. And you with your children know that to be true as well. And so it is with God. Listen, the Scriptures point out frequently that there are many instances in our lives when we do things in such a way that are not pleasing to God. But we're still loved by Him. He calls us to live obediently. And when we don't, we're not going to experience His pleasure. What do I mean by that? I mean that a life lived in conscious pursuit of holiness is a life where we experience more of God's nearness to us and sweeter communion with Him and a true sense of His presence as opposed to a life wherein we're trying to wash the stains from our hands on our own instead of depending on Him in humility and repentance. So if I have unrepentant sin in my life and my mind is set on maintaining that sin instead of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, I cannot have the expectation that I will not be spiritually downcast. In fact, when my soul is downcast, my first inclination ought to be that I consider whether or not I'm pursuing holiness, whether or not the wisdom of God is transforming my mind and my heart in Christ Jesus that I might walk in a worthy manner pleasing to God. And so the sense that I've been deserted spiritually, a sense that God has withdrawn His pleasure, is often a gracious and loving move of God. How so? Well, there is sin in our lives being rooted out by the truth of God's Word. And in the midst of it, if we are crying out like the psalmist we saw a few weeks ago, 
contemplating why our souls are downcast, we generally respond in one of two ways. The first way is that we experience grief and regret and sadness over losing or having a fear of losing the things that the world has to offer that are at the heart of whatever is keeping us from communion with God. So it may be something like pride or jealousy or anger or bitterness, or it may be a sexual sin or an addiction or an idolatrous relationship, a sinful heart that looks for a way out of despair without repentance and without a pursuit of holiness says, I will have whatever I want whenever I want it. I don't care if it's harmful. I don't care if it hurts God. I don't care if it hurts the people I love. I will have it, and I will have it whenever I want it. This kind of heart sins in pursuit of its own pleasures, not the pleasures of God. It's obsessed with keeping the objects of fleshly desire. What's the pain, the tears, the sorrow, the anguish in your soul, the discontentedness of your heart, the feeling of desertion by God? What's that all about? It's about the things true repentance and holiness would require you to lose that you would really like to keep. Remember the false gospel you're preaching to yourself? It's all about you. An unwillingness to set our minds on the truth, to confront our sin, to pursue the pleasures of God instead of the pleasures of the flesh will never bring us nearer to God, but only drive us further away in despair. And that distance you sense between you and and God is, is purposed by God to help us see there's something keeping you away. There's something He's displeased with. There's something that needs to be dealt with, and if you're not willing to deal with it, there's no hope of recovery. John Owen comments, do you think God will help you in such a hypocritical effort to draw near to Him without true repentance? Do you think that the Holy Spirit will help in treachery and falsehood of your own spirit? Do you think He will free you from this so you are free to go and commit another sin which grieves Him? No, says God. If I free him from this lust, I will not hear from him anymore, and he will be content in his failures. It is a grace of God that even in the midst of our sins, we do not feel God and his pleasure toward us and his nearness to us because he brings us to repentance. It is God's kindness toward us. However, there's another kind of response. It may look just as painful It may look just as difficult as the other response, but the focus is on God himself. The heart of a Christian who wants to know God's pleasure in their life is not primarily concerned with what troubles them, but with what troubles God. It's a response of pain that comes because of the break in relationship with God. It's heartbreak over the fact that God has been offended and grieved. The pain and heartfelt agony aren't coming from the sadness and pain of losing a thing, but over the real felt exclusion from God's nearness. I hope you see the difference. You don't have to love the consequences of sin, but godly repentance is produced and motivated by a a, a desire to, to please God and to know of His presence in your life. And friends, if you do not know Christ at all, 
there's no hope of knowing God's presence. There is no hope of true peace and the pleasure of God because only Christ can make you fit for the things of God. In Christ lies all the hope and all the assurance that you could want to possess that you might have an abundant life in peaceful, joyful communion with God no matter what the circumstances of your life are. Are you searching for meaning? Do you feel lost and wandering around this world? Wondering what it's all about. In Christ, all of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God are revealed. If you turn to Him by faith, He will bring you to repentance of your sin, that you can have a clean conscience that pursues the glory of God, what you were made to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord that you might know His pleasure? I'm not talking about doing this half-heartedly, coming to church, praying before your meals. I mean, are you living upon Christ? Daily, dying to yourself. Daily, working against the deceptions of your flesh that tell you that you are worthy of all that you desire, that you might instead have more of Christ. While the pain of losing the world may seem great, if you are in Christ, Paul shows us in our final point this morning that it is all worth it because with it comes the smile of God. Why does God smile upon his people? Because we have already been delivered in Jesus Christ. Brethren, if you have a downcast soul because of unconfessed sin in your life, the gospel you're choosing to listen to is false. The true gospel of Jesus Christ does not leave us wringing our hands, wondering how to get the stain of sin out. The true gospel of Jesus Christ directs our attention to the nail-pierced hands of our Savior, that our guilt might be given to Him, and His righteousness counted as ours, that we might be forgiven. Paul concludes our text by pointing us to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I really hope you see something here that is a massive bomb of encouragement being dropped on us. Remember before, the the prayer of Paul was to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. But here's the thing I didn't say before. You actually can't do that on your own. But what what does Paul say here in his prayer? The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you know what that means? It's utterly counterintuitive. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the kingdom of light. What does that mean? Do you, remember, do you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said he was the greatest prophet. There was no greater prophet than John the Baptist, said Jesus. That's quite a statement. I mean, this is the guy that continually told Herod he was an adulterer, that he had married his brother's wife, that he was wrong. And yet, in the Gospel of Mark, I love this, it says, Herod was confused when he heard this, but he loved to listen. Can you imagine? 
please, John, tell me more about how awful and evil and wicked I am. But that's what the text says. Here was a preacher telling Herod he's a sinner, he's an adulterer, and yet Herod couldn't stop listening to him. I mean, eventually he had his head cut off, but that's another story. But he's a man of attractive character. He's a man of truth. He's a man of conviction. He's a man of great wisdom. He's a man of unbelievable force, of character and greatness. The greatest man who ever lived up until that time other than Jesus. Now, what does that man say about Jesus? He says, one is coming, and I am not worthy to untie his shoes. What's my point? Well, John the Baptist was saying, I am less than less than a slave before him. I am not worthy to look at him. I am not worthy to be in his presence. I am not worthy to relate to him at all. And yet here in our text, when Paul says that we have been qualified... This is Paul saying that God has worthied you. He has made you worthy of the kingdom of light. He has made you worthy of Jesus Christ. He has given you a worthiness that John the Baptist knew he didn't have in and of himself. And you know, you hear religious people say all the time, nobody can ever be sure whether or not they're going to heaven. Nobody can be sure whether or not they're worthy enough. Here's Paul coming and saying, if you're a Christian, you have been made worthy. You've been qualified and you will go to heaven. Do you see what I mean by saying it's counterintuitive? If you look, it doesn't say you obey to get qualified. It says you get qualified. And then you're into the kingdom and you live obediently. God isn't standing at the top of the stairwell looking down at you and saying, you can do it. Come up and you'll be qualified when you make it. God has descended the stairwell and because of Christ, He has qualified us and He carries us to the top. Brothers and sisters, you may have sin in your life right now, and it's keeping you from walking in a manner pleasing to God, but so long as you have breath in your lungs, you can draw near to God. God intends by it all that you would come to the end of yourself, that you might live upon Christ alone. So repent. Stop looking at your hands. Stop looking at the sins that you have committed and wanting to hold on to and look to Christ and repent. He will not turn you away. He will not cast you out. He will draw you near to Him in love and compassion that you might see light in the darkness and know once again the pleasures of God in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks. that you have given us a truth to set our minds on, that you have called us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling that we might know your pleasure and you have qualified us in Christ Jesus to do so. And so we pray this morning, O oh Father, that for each and every one of us that you search our hearts 
that you would reveal to us those things in our lives that keep us from having greater communion with you. And Father, all of us know in our own lives where we fall short, where we're prone to wander. And so I pray, God, you would do a true work in each of our hearts to truly repent, to truly hold firmly and fastly to Christ, and to freely and joyfully give up whatever the things are in this life that keep us from knowing you all the more and all the more sweetly. Lord, we want to know your pleasure. We want your smile upon us. And so we pray, O oh God, for true repentance, for true faithfulness, and a true desire to walk in holiness. And we pray you would do all of this, that you would be glorified in our lives, and that we might love and cherish you all the more, sweetly, joyfully, faithfully walking with you. And we ask you to do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.